0: this path of purification which has seven steps consists of many diverse possibilities and diverse abilities that we have starts out with purification of virtue which I have already discussed and which we need to practice here while we're trying to meditate in so far as it has a connection with our sense contacts to keep them calm and to keep them guarded, the senses that we don't constantly have to react to something it depends on our reactions to our feelings keep those also on an even keel there's shame and fear involved that we could arouse in ourselves which helps us to purify our mind and our views. Now, spoken about the way we can use our mind, there's more that we can do. There are five spiritual faculties which, when we perfect them, turn into powers. When we cultivate them, they turn into a power according to how much we have cultivated them. This power underwrites then our effort in meditation. None of this is apart. All of it belongs together. It is um, an effort that concerns our whole being. It's not just trying to concentrate. These five spiritual faculties are available to all of us. We have them. If we didn't have them, we couldn't cultivate them. If we have a garden without seeds in them, it's no use watering and cultivating, nothing is going to grow. The seeds are there. But we are often, if not always, unaware of which Of our faculties abilities we should actually pay attention to be concerned with develop and cultivate because it appears as if it was more difficult to cultivate that which is good and much easier to cultivate that which is in actual fact that's a fallacy it's a fallacy which comes from partially from our affluent society where we take it for granted that we get what we want in material comfort. And when we don't, we can't understand it. And we also feel the rest because those things don't seem to give us what we're looking for. But it also hinges on the fact that every person has sloth and chauffeur as one of the hindrances embedded in our natural way of being. Now, we have often, we hear about it's very important to get back to nature, but if we remain natural will always remain unconcentrated. That's natural. So, to remain natural isn't exactly what we're looking for, is it? And sloth and torpor, the mind which is drowsy and can't be bothered and expects to get something for nothing and thereby makes the body slothful too is natural not always but now and then and therefore most people don't put their attention on the cultivation of that which would bring them the best results give them a spiritual growth and emancipation bring concentration lead them to harmony, peacefulness because it doesn't appear to be so easy. All efforts are exactly the same. And since it requires effort to stay alive and since that is not sufficient because it's a foregone conclusion that we're not going to be successful with that, we might as well make effort in the right direction where the results may be extremely useful for us. The five spiritual faculties are compared by the Buddha to a team of horses pulling a wagon. Obviously the similes that the Buddha used were those that were prevalent in his day and age. Horses and wagons were common. This team of horses has five horses. One is the lead horse and then there are two pairs. The lead horse can go as fast or as slow as it wishes, the others have to follow, but the pairs have to balance. Unless they balance and go at the same speed, the wagon will topple. The lead horse is mindfulness. Nothing can compare with mindfulness. The Buddha said about it, it's the one way for the purification of beings, for reducing pain, grief and lamentation, for the final elimination of all Dukkha, for entering the noble path, for realizing Nibbana, the one way. It is constantly part and parcel of the teaching and here it it has pride of place and the seven factors of enlightenment always have mindfulness also at the top. Mindfulness is a mental formation. We form it in the mind, just like we form all those nonsensical thoughts that keep coming up. The only difference is that the nonsensical thoughts come up by themselves. We don't have to do anything. They just come. Mindfulness, we have to be deliberate until it becomes so habitual we have it as our companion all the time. It's establishing a habit. So what could be more important? Discursive, nonsensical thinking about the future or the past, things that make very little sense, if any at all, or the deliberate direction of the mind to introspection where we get to know ourselves to the point of eventually realizing absolute reality Effort is needed, that's true but also effort brings some satisfaction After one has made effort, one feels quite pleased that one has made it. And it breeds new effort. Because one gets the confidence that having made this one effort, one can do it again. If one reduces it, the effort, it will continually get more reduced. We are creatures of habit. If we can't make the effort to be mindful, to try our best under all circumstances to understand, then this will impair the ability of our mind If we make the effort and do it again and again, it will increase the ability. Obviously, a skill that one practices increases one's skillfulness. Mindfulness means to be right there and nowhere else except what is happening at this moment. watching the breath is mindfulness of in and out breath can you watch the one that is already gone or can you watch that yet to come we can only watch the breath that is happening now and that's the only way we can meditate it's so simple and the same thing applies To mindfulness under all circumstances. There's nothing that we can be aware of that's already gone, nor can we be aware of anything that's yet to come. It's got to be now, this moment. And this is one of the very important benefits that we get from our meditative practice, even when it hasn't come together yet, It shows us that the only thing that is really happening is that what is going on this moment. And if we pay a little more attention and are a little more mindful, we will be aware of the fact that that what's happening this moment is already gone. It only takes a millisecond. And if we haven't paid attention, we lose that millisecond. And the more milliseconds we lose, the more of our life we will lose. Life can't be thought about. It's got to be lived and experienced. Humanity has that absurd habit of trying to think about it and write about it and discuss it and debate it we've got to live it what can we live? each moment nothing else the past is irrevocably gone the future is yet to come what can we live? now and if we actually were to do that we wouldn't have a worry in the world because fortunately we can't do in our mind more than one thing at a time We're either mindful and attentive, or we worry, are anxious, upset, angry, or whatever else we try to be. So if we're mindful for purifying, the one way for the purification of being, that purifying is automatic, because nothing else can go on. In the meditation, obviously, we can only watch this one breath. (coughs) But outside of meditation, we have so many opportunities to watch. There are four foundations of mindfulness, four possibilities of mindfulness. The first one is the body. When we watch the breath, that's attention, mindfulness on the body, part of body. When we do walking meditation and watch the movement of the feet, that's mindfulness of the body. When we watch how we sit down, how we move our arms and hands, how we open the door, how we go along the path, all mindfulness of the body. When we eat, put the spoon in the food, lift it to the mouth, chew it, taste it, swallow it, mindfulness of the body. When we go to the toilet and put the toilet paper where it should be, mindfulness of the body, because it's the hand that's got to do it, we pay attention. Now, this mindfulness of the body means that mind and body are in the same place. It's a lovely expression explaining that which says, washing dishes while washing dishes. So tomorrow, undoubtedly, some of you will have the uh, dishwashing duty. Just watch and see what the mind does. Is the mind washing dishes at the same time that the body is washing dishes? Or is the mind for one millisecond washing dishes and the next millisecond thinking, why do I always cop this job? Or the next moment again washing the dishes and the next one thinking, I wish this was over with. Or why are they using so many dishes? Is that really necessary? and why isn't the water hot, or why isn't it cold, or whatever, instead of washing dishes. Now, if we stop thinking, why isn't the water hot, why isn't it cold, why do I always have to do that? Obviously, if we don't do that, we have no negativity in the mind. We're just washing dishes. So we're purifying ourselves. There's only one person in the whole world that we can purify, and that's ourselves. We might as well Start right then and there. Washing dishes while washing dishes means that the mind is exactly there with the hand doing the wiping or the rinsing or whatever it's doing together. Our mind is so tricky as you must have noticed by now that it can have, the Buddha said, 3,000 mind moments in the blink of an eyelid. Now we don't usually have that many, but we could. And because we can do that, they follow each other so quickly that we don't even notice what we're doing until we've already done it with the mind. Instead of being right there, the mind staying with what is happening it goes off on a tangent what it's going to do later what we could be doing instead of this and all sorts of ideas the body is the very important aspect of mindfulness because it is big we can see it, we can touch it and it's very um, um, usually very active so the mind has a lot get in touch with. We have uh, three other possibilities. Mindfulness of feeling, mental formation, and content of the mind. Now the last one first, content of the mind. When you label, that's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. You might as well practice it. It's the one way to purification. Ekayana, the one way. When you label your thought, you know the content of the thought, and you will eventually be so aware, under all circumstances, when it's either unwholesome or wholesome, that you will become quite adept at watching that nothing unto it happens in your mind. When you become aware of the fact in meditation, that you're thinking instead of watching the breath, that's the third foundation of mindfulness. The mental formation has arisen. And when you're aware of unpleasant feelings under any circumstance, but particularly in the meditation, and watch your reaction to it and try to let go of the negativity but just be aware of the feeling as feeling and not giving a long story about it how unpleasant it is how it um, stops you from meditating and all the other ideas that people get about unpleasant feeling but just see the unpleasant feeling as unpleasant feeling, that's mindfulness. Protection against negativity, because we can only do one thing, either see feeling as feeling or dislike it. This is very important. It is not useful to sit in meditation and sit through, for any reason whatsoever, with pain and dislike it for at least half an hour or twenty minutes making bad karma for twenty minutes what for? you've already made enough bad karma in this life why make more during meditation? meditation is supposed to make good karma so if there is an unpleasant feeling and there's no reason why there shouldn't be because there are only three kinds pleasant, unpleasant and neutral and the neutral ones are considered by us as pleasant anyway or at least not unpleasant so we don't worry about them and most of the time we don't even know we've got them so we only worry about pleasant and unpleasant so it can only be one of the two if we sit there and we have this unpleasant feeling that has arisen and the mind keeps telling stories about it. And one sits there waiting for the bell to ring. Or one sits there thinking, I wish it would go away. Everything is impermanent. Why doesn't it go away? It's taking too long. But if I really put my attention on maybe it will go away. They're always talking about this impermanence. Why doesn't it work when it should work? Or whatever their mind is throwing up useless it's nothing but a negative reaction to an unpleasant feeling if we really use mindfulness all we know is this is an unpleasant feeling which means the objectivity which breeds equanimity no like no dislike, it just is if we can do that we can go back To the meditation subject. It just is. It's an unpleasant feeling. Then, if that unpleasant feeling becomes very strong again, and the mind goes back to it, and we just see the feeling as feeling, that's fine. But if we have any kind of resistance or rejection for it, we need to look at that because then the feeling, the mindfulness of feeling, has been replaced by the content of the thought which is then unwholesome Is that clear? Maybe I better say that again I see a lot of faces which look somewhat puzzled you put your attention on the unpleasant feeling, and the unpleasant feeling is nothing but unpleasant feeling. That's fine. That's mindfulness of feeling. Vedana nupasana, second base of mindfulness. Absolutely essential in, in everyday life also. we learn it in meditation. But if the mind starts telling stories about it, if I sit here long enough, it will go away, or I wish the bell would ring, or if I meditate for the next five three years, uh, I've heard that that we don't get pains like this anymore, and I wonder why they do have to sit on the floor, couldn't we sit on whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Then, it's no longer mindfulness of feeling. We are not even mindful at all, but if we know that we're thinking all that, It has been replaced by mindfulness of mental formation and the content. If we then become aware of the content, we must know it's unwholesome. So we are no longer mindful of the feeling. We are doing all sorts of thinking. So as we become aware of that, then we can be aware of the fact that the resistance and rejection doesn't do us any good. If we can't accept it as it is, we need to move our position. But not instinctively and impulsively, but with a full understanding that Negative thinking is not useful. That we are not able to have objectivity towards an unpleasant feeling and therefore we've been conquered by the unpleasant feeling and we move. If we do that, we have had mindfulness of the whole process. The process which starts with the touch contact and then goes to feeling and from feeling to the mental formation and then the content of the mental formation. These are the possibilities of being aware, of being mindful. Now the same applies to everyday life. Four foundations, the body, the feeling, the mental formation and the content. The more we get clear on that while we're meditating, the easier it is to do outside of meditation. It's the lead horse, it's what leads us on the spiritual path. If we don't know where we're at, how can we go anywhere? Have you ever looked on a map trying to find your way? to a destination which you don't know and when looking at the map realizing that you don't even know which corner you're at were you able to find your way it's impossible we've got to know what corner we're at in order to find our way on this map the same here unless we know where we're at this whole path doesn't help us. Mindfulness is the one thing that shows us what we're doing, shows us how we're reacting, shows us where our mind is. Unless we become introspective enough to use it, we'll always be in a sort of a fog. Mindfulness dispels the fall. The first pair that has to balance is faith and wisdom. It's compared like this faith is a blind giant that meets up with a small, sharp-eyed cripple. And the blind giant says to the sharp-eyed cripple called Wisdom, I'm faith, I'm very strong, but I can't see. Your Wisdom, you're weak, but you have sharp eyes, right on my shoulders, together we'll go far. In other words, in the Buddhist dispensation we are not requested or required to take anything on blind faith. Blind faith can move mountains but being blind unfortunately doesn't know which mountain needs moving. In the Buddhist teaching It has to be a joint effort of faith and wisdom. Faith is an affair of the heart. Wisdom is an affair of the mind. All of us have both, heart and mind. In the Buddha's language, they are actually one word. But in order to make ourselves better understood in English, we do need to separate them. The logical thinking and the feeling, the emotional feeling, which we often also compare to the male and the female within us. All of us have both. All of us have male and female within. Very often we only develop one side of us often it's said that the females develop the emotions whereas the males develop the logical thinking which is a generalization which obviously doesn't always hold true but we need to check ourselves out whether we are male or female makes no difference and find out Which side have we developed more? Are we always trying to understand everything by logic and think it all out and use our head in favor of the emotion or are we easily emotional respond in an emotional way without trying to think it out whatever we do too much of we have neglected the other and we should take good note of that and cultivate that side of us which hasn't had enough attention faith develops love and devotion. We can call it confidence. We often do. The Buddha did not require a blind faith, but he required enough confidence in his words to try them out. If we don't try the instructions how we're ever going to find out whether they're right or not. When we have, from personal experience, found that at least one of them is correct in his words, we will naturally have more confidence. That confidence will be not only in the teaching, not only in the great teacher, the Buddha, but also in our own ability to follow that path. In our own ability to grow. Unless we try to grow we'll remain like children until we die. Our bodies have grown up. Our minds have not. Only the mind that has matured is the mind that then goes to enlightenment. We need both sides of our being in order to tread this spiritual path, because nothing is closer to us than our own spiritual development. It is the closest relationship that we could possibly have. If we have a relationship with another person and we understand that other person but we don't love the other person, it's not a very successful relationship and it's certainly not going to last. If we love the other person but don't understand them at all, it's also not very successful. It has more of a chance to last, but it's not very successful. We're always going to feel short-changed. If this happens in our own spiritual development, we won't be able to proceed. We have to first understand and then also love that which we can fathom even though we may not have actualized it. The love goes towards the ideal, which we can get an inkling of, and towards that which is higher than ourselves, which has the connotation of utter purity which can be perfection it does not include a feeling of being imperfect and not good enough it includes only the love of that which is greater than our humanness which we can slowly and gently step by step approach it needs mindfulness to know what it means to be a human being and then from that we can already discern even though we don't know it yet what it means to surpass that and transcend it. If that love arises, that does not have to be ritualistic. It does not have to be concerned with dogma. It is an affair of the heart which is open, which can be giving of itself. Unless we do anything at all wholeheartedly, it doesn't work. And if you've ever wondered why the meditation hasn't worked yet, that's it. No other reason. Wholeheartedly it will work. How can it fail? whatever we do wholeheartedly comes to pass. Meditation is a science of the mind. It is the ability of the mind, not of somebody's special mind. Mind is mind. It's wholeheartedness which is lacking, not the particular mind's ability. Anybody and everybody can do it. Wholeheartedly means that our whole heart is open and our whole heart is involved. Naturally, the wisdom which is needed acquires as its first step information which for instance at this point in time I'm trying to give you that's all you're getting is information you can't get wisdom from someone else wisdom can only come from inside of one information is the first step after having had the information we still got to remember all that information or at least some of it Then, when we have remembered some of it, we have to practice it. And when we practice it, we have to be aware of the experience of what's happening when we practice it. For instance, let's say we get an unwholesome thought. Something like, I can't stand that person. They're um, they're slamming the doors, I can't stand it. And you become aware of the fact that this is a very unwholesome thought and that you're only making yourself unhappy with that. And immediately you turn it around and you say, what a a wonderful person making such an effort to sit through this whole meditation course. And you appreciate that person's effort and then you become aware of the fact that you're feeling much, much better having turned the thought to something wholesome simple, isn't it? it just needs to be done, that's all it's so simple, it's almost ludicrous, isn't it? having done it you have now had the experience and with it the understanding of the experience that you have changed the unwholesome to the wholesome and with that understanding of the experience wisdom has arisen because now you know you can do it again and you also know that this is the way to find happiness within and if somebody should ask you you can even pass it on to someone else but it's no use knowing it only you've got to do it and experience the doing of it and realizing the experience that's how wisdom arises the understood experience we have many experiences within if we were a little more attentive, more mindful, we would understand our experiences better. And impermanence would not be either a mystery or something to dislike or something to forget, but it would be pervading and permeating our whole existence. And we would see things in a totally different connotation we have the experience of impermanence, impermanence constantly but do we also have the understanding of it here we have a chance to look at it with understanding faith and wisdom have to balance each other they have to go along at the same pace if they don't do that if one overrides the other we are either over emotional or on a head trip neither way works the uh, both are common and it applies not only to the spiritual life it applies to life Being aware of our emotions, we need to sort out those that are wholesome and those that are unwholesome in daily living. And again, with wisdom, change from one to the other, from the unwholesome to the wholesome. I will talk about the wholesomeness and unwholesomeness of emotions at another time but here we can see that in the Buddhist instruction it's quite clear that it's not that we need to shut out the mind, the thinking, what we need to do is wise consideration. In Pali that's called yoniso maniskara and it is one of the ever-recurring refrain in the Buddhist teaching: wise consideration? Sometimes, when people hear that they're supposed to stop thinking in meditation, then they say, "Well, if I'm not supposed to be thinking, how can I do contemplation?" There are two ways. One is we need to stop all thinking and just get into the feeling tranquility and calm in the meditative procedure comes through feeling so we need both we have to be aware of feeling and use it properly and we have to be aware of wise consideration wisdom can be acquired, we're not born with it. Anybody can acquire it. We have to make an effort. We have to look upon ourselves as our working ground. People have workshops at home and they make nice things in those workshops and uh, people study to make money, and uh, they learn trades, and go to school and to university. But that this person is the one that needs to be learned, attended to, and cultivated, and be the study ground for Harmonious, peaceful living. That idea escapes most people. We are taught to use our mind for learning those things which are useful. We are not taught to use our heart. Both have to balance. There's another pair of horses, which I will explain to you tomorrow, since from experience it's impossible to listen any longer than forty five minutes, if that long. You can ask some questions if you like. Yes. Wisdom can be transcendental wisdom, but it can be worldly wisdom. It only transcends the world when it has come to the point of insight, complete insight. But they are, in the Buddha's explanation, all is citta, which is mind. And within that we have feeling, perception, mental formation, and sense consciousness and all that is within mind so compassion is within mind wisdom is within mind these are the wholesome formations there are others which are unwholesome but wisdom can become transcendental when it has gained insight into transcendental reality by the same talking compassion can become transcendental when it has uh, become the within a person that has transcended the worldly realm ok what else what else
1: yes that, um, the reason why because we are not dedicated wholeheartedly. the the well, the last um, I think it's a state where the thought becomes very constant, not very really clear, something in the background. But at the same time, I'm not concentrating either. I seem to be concentrated too. So that's, from what you've just said, I tend to look at it that I'm not going to say wholeheartedly to the whole heart of it, it's, it's not offset. So why is that how it is?
0: Well, that's not exactly what I had in mind when I said wholeheartedly. When I said wholeheartedly, I had in mind living a spiritual life where one's whole effort is directed towards purification of oneself, no matter what one is doing, constantly. doesn't matter whether one is cleaning a toilet or whether one is uh, typing a, a letter or answering the phone, it doesn't matter that wholehearted attention to the path of purification. That's what I had in mind when I said wholeheartedly. And when that attention is on that path of purification, under all these circumstances, then the meditation falls into place. These are the support systems. I have no doubt that at this point in time you have the whole-hearted intention to become concentrated. But, the support system has to be there. And that's our whole-hearted living the spiritual path. that clear? So when it disappears are you back on the breath then? and then it appears again well what the problem is lack of concentration isn't it or what else why why am i having no concentration well i think i (laughs) have given that already (laughs) the mind hasn't got the strength it has neither the strength nor does it have the support system without the support system it just doesn't work there has to be I've mentioned so many support systems already they're all needed every one of them if you do it here the mindfulness in every step you take the attention and every thought you think. The knowing, every feeling and all reaction. That's your mindfulness support system. The determination, the energy, the perseverance and the patience. The calming and guarding of the senses. All of them you have to use. Then today I was talking this morning about the four supreme efforts. Now about the spiritual faculties. The whole gamut. You need all of it, not you, everybody. And then it will work. That's a whole-hearted, spiritual practice. People are saying about "I'm practicing," and what they're talking about is forty-five minutes on the pillow. That's not practice. That's sitting forty-five minutes on the pillow. This is practice, the wholehearted giving oneself to that aspect of purification. And if you do that while you're here, during the course, you will find that your meditation will improve dramatically. So try. All right? Hmm? And don't become dissatisfied with yourself either. This is a human problem, it's not an individual problem. You must be aware of the fact that you're not having an individual problem. This is a universal problem, a human problem. Everybody has the same. So all you can do is use all these supports to the best of your ability and again and again when you find yourself slipping, you bring yourself back. That's all. All right, anything else? Yes? <laughs>
1: I think, I think, I remember you said earlier today that most of us, I think, are four oh. of nine. And I think you were also told that all things you are happening. And I think it's you know what I mean, why I can't put so much energy into of
0: the peace of mind because peace of mind is happiness. Sometimes there's always things to be the same thing. Mm. Yes, that is uh, something which uh, has to be a, a personal introspection. We can say quite clearly that peace of mind is happiness. That's for sure. But we often confuse happiness and pleasure. You see, peace of mind is a kind of happiness which is transcending our ordinary sense contacts and our usual aspects of living. Now we have, all of us, some happiness in our ordinary living, but we are dependent for that happiness upon outer conditions, And this is what you need to um, discern, uh, Brian, whether the the happiness which is not peace of which is not identical with peace of mind whether that's a happiness depending on outer conditions because the happiness which is identical with peace of mind is only dependent on inner conditions does that make sense anything else yes have your cake and eat it too this is the trouble why meditation doesn't work it just doesn't work having one's cake and eating it too one has to know where one's priorities lie once one has become independent of outer conditions for one's happiness and I will explain this in much more detail as we go along The happiness which comes from outer conditions is also there, but it doesn't have the um, connotation of being afraid to lose it and the connotation of having to look for it. As long as we don't have the happiness from inner conditions, we are certainly looking for happiness from outer conditions and are afraid to lose it if we have some of it. And that's where the lack of peace comes from. So the priority has to be the happiness from inner conditions. When will we get any from the outer conditions or not? In fact, we usually get far more, but it's not important anymore. We have to really make up our mind which one we are striving for. Hmm. Uh, not necessarily. There are those people who have found out that the um, outer conditions and the happiness that they've had with that are first of all unreliable, and the outer conditions, secondly, the happiness is short lived because the conditions constantly change and there's always fear involved that they may change and one is uh, a slave because one is not independent and when one has become sick and tired of that then one has that inner yearning and that inner understanding without any proof that there must be something else and that's the reason why most people come to meditation and that's a good enough reason. Then, of course, when you get a taste of it, then you say, aha. That's an aha experience then. <laughs> Anything else? Tendency of what? How do you avoid the tendency to push your ego in there and then? I see. The ego interferes with letting go of the unwholesome thought. Is that what you're saying? Sure. Who is talking just now? You? Are you talking? (laughs) Of course. Naturally. but you said I'm going to ask this it was obvious oh yes could be seen on your face I'm going to ask this now I mean who's going to bed tonight who's going to get up tomorrow morning who's eating breakfast who's trying to meditate Hmm? Who is trying to do all that? You see the thing is, um, it's a common error. It's a very common error. We live in relative reality. And in this relative reality we are all a single individual me. And if anybody is not a single individual me, you might as well go home because you're enlightened, you don't have to sit here. Since you're going to stay sitting, you're probably not enlightened, huh? So, in this relative reality, everybody knows who's going to bed, who's getting up, who's eating, who's meditating. And all these um, efforts for the spiritual path are done by me. Who else? Not by someone else. has to be done by me. They are done for the simple reason that as we become more and more skillful at them, eventually we purify to the point where that deep-seated taproot of the ego becomes less and less Anchored, and one day we can uproot it. Having uprooted it, the person is exactly as before, but no more any feeling of me. If there's no more feeling of me, there's no hate, no greed, no like or dislike. There cannot possibly be any unhappiness because there's nobody there to be unhappy. But on that relative basis where we live now, each one has to make the effort. And making the effort will eventually bring results where the ego is at least a little smaller or less obstructive as it has been before. You must remember that relative and absolute reality are two like two railroad tracks which never intersect. They are not even parallel. They are on different levels of consciousness. And since we haven't got the consciousness of Enlightenment, we have to go along with the consciousness we've got and do our work there. And eventually we may be able to lift that consciousness to the other track, to the other level. At this point in time, all our endeavors are on the level of the ego consciousness. And as I said, if it isn't, no need to sit here. Is that clear? Sorry, I can't hear you.
1: You
0: What do you feel contradictory? You're going to? you are going to change yourself well, nobody else could possibly do it Hmm? that would be lovely (laughs) I'd love it (laughs) the Buddha, Buddha would have spent 45 years of his life in vain trying to teach people how to do it and I would have spent the last 16 years of my life completely uselessly but if that was possible it would be great (laughs) you have to think about it again anything else please put the attention on the breath for just a moment one person in your life whom you love very much and let that feeling for that person arise in your heart being fully aware of that feeling now transfer that same feeling to yourself no difference between human beings, the love you have for that person is the same as the love you have for yourself. Let that feeling pervade you and you. Again bring up that feeling for the beloved person, know it truly, feel it completely and then transfer that same feeling to the person sitting nearest you in this hall. Give that person all your love and warmth just as you do for the beloved person. Now extend that exactly that same feeling to everyone here. Make no difference between your beloved person and everyone here. Let the feeling for your beloved person come up in your heart again. Be fully aware of it. Let it fill you. Pervade you. And now transfer the same feeling to your parents. Give them your love. fully and unstintingly. Now transfer exactly the same feelings to those people who are closest to you. Fill them with your love. Surround them with love. Bring up that feeling again for your beloved person. Feel it strongly and clearly. Transfer to all your good friends. Let them have the same gift from your heart. of your neighbors, the people you work with, those you meet here and there, knowing them or not, let them have the same loving feeling that you give to your beloved person, making no difference between who you are giving it to. Just let it flow out of your heart. think of anyone whom you find difficult to love. Bring up the feeling you have for your beloved person. Let it pervade you and then give that same feeling to the difficult person so that your heart has no blockage in it. of your beloved person again let the feeling come up for that person let the love for that person fill you surround you and totally imbued with that love and then open your heart and let this love flow out of it to people near and far To those that are here in the what, those that live around the area, in the small towns, let this love that you have within your heart flow unhindered, unimpeded, as far as it will go. The people in Sydney going into their houses, touching their hearts, and further and further, as far as it can go, in the state, in the country, in the world. Let the love that you have for your beloved person become your inner wealth, which you can share. Now put your attention back on yourself. Feel the contentment that comes from right effort. Feel the joy that comes from loving and giving. Fill yourself with contentment and joy. Surround yourself with love feeling totally safe and secure beings everywhere have love in their heart.